Okay. Um, first, I want to thank Professor Alcorn for a very generous introduction and also for having me here. Now, you should know that economic historians work in economic departments, and historians rarely talk to one another. <laughs> and while I was working on this dissertation, I, it was very important for me to engage, to speak with historians who are working on the same topic that I'm working on, and to see whether what I have to say matters for them. And I was surprised to see that actually there is willingness to, to, to receive interesting ideas. And uh, uh, it's just a great opportunity to come here, talk to people of historical studies, and to the general audience, and, and the other things that I like best to do, which is to talk about my uh, research. So it's not taken for granted, and I really appreciate that. So I'm not a historian by uh, training, although I did study history. Uh, I approach the topic from a very quantitative approach. I don't speak the languages uh, of, of my subjects. Um, but I, uh, I use data. And you'd be surprised, but there is a lot of data about historical migration. In fact, much more about, than about uh, contemporary migration. And I'm going to present to you here uh, two pieces of research that make uh, extensive use, uh, sorry, intensive use of uh, um, an incredible source, uh, probably the best source that we'll ever have about mass migration ever, which is the Ellis Island uh, arrival records. Some of you may know these. Uh, they were recently coded a few years ago by uh, um, uh, volunteers of, uh, um, of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Um, and this is one of the first, actually the second uh, um, case where this, the, uh, this like, whole data of the Ellis Island is actually being used uh, in research. And as you'll see, uh, data does, uh, do, do often tend to tell very interesting stories. So I was asked to, to dedicate about 50-50 my presentation to the Jewish and the Italian case. I think it was very unfair because I would actually wanted to do, to do it 80-80. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to be really, really difficult. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll, there is a lot of materials to cover. I really apologize if I sometimes overrush or even skip a slide or two. So I'm going to start with uh, a study on the Jewish uh, migration from the Russian Empire. And I think the best way to start is by uh, looking at this cartoon and uh, analyzing it. So if you see, uh, what you can see on the far right is um, a few houses and they're uh, going up in flames. So this, this is a Jewish town, what we call a shtetl, um, which is the typical habitat of East European Jews um, around the end of the 19th and the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Uh, it goes up in flame because it had just experienced a pogrom. So what is a pogrom? Uh, a pogrom is a, a specific, a, a term that ori was originally specific for the Jewish-Russian case. This is a, a, an event of mass anti-Jewish violence, typically at the level of the town or a small locality. Now, what you can see is that from this town that is experiencing a pogrom, there is a stream of immigrants, uh, a stream of migrants that are leaving the town. Uh, you can see this guy is a Russian Jew because it says so on his, uh, uh, on his robe. Um, and uh, you can also note that the demographic composition of this stream of migrants is quite peculiar. You see an old man, an elderly woman, and a child. So these are not our typical uh, migrants who are looking forward to gain from the advantage of the American labor markets. This really look like people who live because they don't have a choice. They are driven out uh, by persecution. 
Uh, you can see the sack on the back of the old Jewish man, and it says things like robbery and uh, uh, all sorts of uh, calamities that uh, the Jews have experienced at that time in Russia. And so basically this um, cartoon tells a story that is um, very commonly shared both at the time of the migration and still widely held today. That the Jewish migration from Russia was different from other so uh, sorts of uh, immigration to the United States from other countries because these people were mainly driven by uh, persecutions and uh, violence. It also explained why the Jewish, the demographic composition of the Jewish migration was different than other migrations. Mo mo uh, basically, all of those people here are not likely to be labor force participants. These are not our typical 20, 25-year-old guy who's willing to pick up a shovel and work in a mine uh, or, or in a workshop. Now, if you ask today American Jews who could, uh, in most likelihood, can trace one of their ancestors to uh, any of those uh, shtetls, why did our grandfather uh, immigrate to the United States? And they will give you the explanation that his grandfather gave him, which is uh, the Tsar wanted to draft me to the army for 25 years. I experienced pogroms. Um, and I came to Ellis Island, and my name was changed, and that's how I became an American. And then when you ask him where did your grandfather came from, he would say a name for town, and you would look it up and you realize that there was never a pogrom in this place or anywhere in the area. Pogroms were actually very local. Um, and the 25 years draft to the Russian army, that had ended 50 years before the first Russian Jew had immigrated to America. And not a single name was changed in Ellis Island. That's another myth of the migration. So what I'm going to do here is really to um, test this uh, uh, hypothesis. I should also say that pogroms occurred, it, it, they were ubiquitous, but they occurred at two main waves. The first wave was around uh, 1881, which is typically um, the period to which the beginning of the uh, Jewish mass migration is dated to. And then there was another wave around the Russian Revolution of 1905. It was worse and more uh, widely spread. But when you speak about pogroms in the late uh, imperial period, we're spe really speaking about two waves that were very short. So, uh, what I'm going to do. So the leading question is really to explain uh, why the Jews came uh, from Russia to the United States. Particularly, um, I'm going to ask whether the first wave of pogroms had jump-started the Jewish migration, as was often claimed. Second, whether we can see evidence that the second wave of pogroms had boosted migration from areas that had experienced the pogroms, whether there was a, an effect on migration of the pogroms that occurred at the local level. And third, and I'm not going to relate to that here because I don't find much interesting stuff, but there is another question, which is whether the pogroms did have an effect on the demographic composition of the, migrate, of, of, of the migrants, whether people who were driven by pogroms actually were more likely to be elderly women, children, and, uh, and, and old men. Now, uh, what comes out of it is actually a story that I wasn't really expecting uh, to see. And that is that there is a very important geographic pattern for the Jewish migration. So I, I pose it here as a question, but actually it's, it's, it's what I found. Um, that the Jewish, mig uh, Jewish migration really progressed in a very orderly spatial pattern, which I'm going to see you later on on map. That is important. Sorry. Uh, that is important uh, because uh, there is a great, uh, great debate on the economics of migration. And particularly with the case of the East European Jews and other ethnicities and the case of the Italians, it's not really clear why, although they really migrated in, in great numbers 
uh, around the turn of the century, they were almost absent from migration around the 1870s or uh, 1880s. Basically, the, the migrants from the European periphery who were far poorer and had a lot to gain from migration started migrating really late. And this is a huge puzzle uh, in the field. So um, basically what I'm going to ask is whether th th there is a, uh, an opinion in the literature that was basically rejected by economic historians that there is a, a process of spatial diffusion across space in which migration can only start it, it, it basically, there are um, networks of migrants that take a very long time to filter over the European continent. And here I think I'm going to provide uh, very strong evidence that something like that might have happened. So what is the empirical strategy? I'm going to collect data on Jewish migration at the level of the districts uh, and the year. And then I'm going to test for what economists are calling differences in differences migration which is basically to say whether, to, to test uh, statistically, whether districts that had experienced pogroms had subsequently sent more migrants uh, compared to similar districts that did not experience uh, a, a pogrom. Um, the main finding are the following. What I find is that there is virtually no geographic relation whatsoever between the first wave of pogroms and the beginning of the Jewish migration. These are two distinct uh, events, at least geographically speaking. However, I do find that the second wave of pogrom had increased the rate of migration from districts that did experience a pogrom. And this leads me to write down an updated narrative of the Jewish migration. I actually find that uh, internal conditions such as either economics or pogroms played uh, a secondary role. And what happened was really that networks of migration were filtering over space. And the migrants, the, the, the Jews who experienced pogrom, uh, were uh, not linked to prior chains of migration, and therefore they could not react. Okay, so reacting to either programs or economic conditions crucially depends on knowing something, someone that had migrated before you. If a region is not yet exposed to migration, it cannot, it cannot react to programs or economic recessions or famine uh, by migration. And I think that it's an important lesson for the case of uh, the, the European migration in general, also for Italy. Uh, it shows that, at least in, some, in, in one case, uh, there was uh, demand for migration, the, the population was ripe for migration, but the bottleneck was the lack of availability of networks. So from now on, I'm going to basically um, move on to what I actually do. Now, this is the map of the area that I'm dealing with. This is the Pale of Settlement, which are the 25 western provinces of the Russian Empire. And this, this area have about 5 million Jews uh, living there, mainly in small towns. So this is uh, already a data set that I um, uh, collected, which ba basically maps 85% of the Jewish population down to the level uh, of the locality. Now, a few general um, quantities that are going to be important for us. Uh, out of a population that around the middle of the period in 1897 was uh, 5 million, um, 2 million immigrants eventually uh, left. 80% of them, about 1.6 million, uh, emigrated to the United States. Uh, there were other destinations, but by and large, each one of them was minor. Uh, as opposed to the Italian migration, the United States was really uh, the, main, the main thing that was going on. It was also a very significant stream of migration uh, in terms of the overall United States immigration. Uh, about 11% of all migrants at that time uh, were Jewish, second only to the Italian migration. Uh, there was also half a million Jews emigrating from other East European countries 
uh, to the United States and other destinations, mainly for Rum Romania and the Austro-Hungarian empires. And for what we know, and also from that data that we have, almost everyone was linked to people, someone who uh, came before him. There are some peculiar characteristics that are measurable of the Jewish migration. Jews had a high dependency ratio, and that's what I showed you on the cartoon, lots of uh, old people, elderly uh, um, women and uh, children, and also very low rate of return migration. They were on the outer scale compared to Italians. Italians did tend to come back and go back and forth uh, quite frequently. Now, the, the thesis that there was a direct relation between pogroms and the Jewish migration is consistent with some of the things that, uh, with, with some historical evidence. First, the timing. It started in 1881. There were two peaks. In 1892, there was a spike that was associated with a wave of expulsions of Jews from uh, cities such as Moscow uh, and uh, St. Petersburg. And the, main, the global peak was in 1906, uh, just around the time of the second wave of programs. So the, the timing seems to fit right. The demographic composition, as I su suggested, um, points out that this migration was different, and it may have been uh, more like refugees rather than economic migration. Similarly, the low rates of return migration also uh, suggest that. Also, there was one particular case which I'm going to describe very shortly, which is the Brody episode. So after the first wave of pogroms, there was a stream of refugees that were leaving the area probably of Kiev, but they arrived uh, to a border town on the border with the Austrian Empire, on the Austrian side that is called Brody. And around that time, there was a very large refugee camp of Jewish refugees that uh, was formed there. And Jewish um, uh, organizations united to provide uh, relief and welfare and to help some of them to arrive to the United States. And it's not really clear how many of them did so. Most of them re were repatriated. These guys, I don't know if you can see the writing in the small letters below, these guys are Jews are about to be repatriated back to Russia. These are not going to be immigrants. They're refugees, but are going back. Um, and so this case provides a, uh, at least an anecdote that links the pogroms to the beginning of the Jewish migration. On the other hand, there was also mass Jewish migration from the uh, Habsburg Empire which uh, did not experience pogroms and where the political conditions were more benign. Um, there was also mass migration of minorities, other minorities from Russia. So Russians as a whole did not migrate abroad, but Poles, Lithuanians, um, and Germans did so in very large numbers. Not as much as the Jews, but they did so. There was also a lot of Russians were also moving, but they were moving mainly towards the east, to Siberia and to uh, Central Asia. So a lot of people were actually moving around uh, at, at that time. And there was also a lot of Jewish internal migration, mainly flowing from regions where uh, there were no programs to places where there were programs, but the standards of living were probably uh, better. And probably, and that's something that we weren't sure about until now, um, there was less migration from areas that did experience programs. So um, I'm going to briefly describe the data that I'm using. Um, first, as a base, I know, I can see the population, I see how many Jews live in each district because I have, I collected data from the 1897 Russian census. Second, and this is a bit, uh, requires a bit more, a few more details, the Landsmannschaften data. So what's a, a Landsmannschaft? This is a hometown-based association, and there were thousands of these that Jews were uh, founded uh, in the United States at that time. And I'm able to link them to the place of origin and to tell uh, at which year these uh, associations were founded. And then I have the Ellis Island arrival records. 
where, which are basically 2.3 million immigrants who came from Russia. And I tried, and the, the last place of residence was coded, of residence was coded, and I tried to geocode uh, which title actually uh, um, they came from. And also collected a uh, list of programs. So I wish I could tell you more about this data, but I'm, I really need to rush. So I'm going to show you one particular case of a town to show you how, how the data really looks like. So this is the town of Kalarash, which is in Bessarabia, currently uh, Moldova. Um, I see two, land, two Landsmannschaften that were founded by uh, veterans of this city, and they were both very late. Most, most districts produced uh, Landsmannschaften earlier on. 1906 is the first time I have indication of uh, any activity of um, uh, Kalarash-based uh, immigrants in New York. Um, Kalarash experienced one of the most gruesome cases of uh, pogroms uh, in, in, 19, uh, in late 1905. So this is the data about our pogroms. Uh, out of a population of about uh, 4,500 Jews, there were 230 uh, houses that, uh, um, ruined, 2,500 uh, persons, basically half of the community uh, reduced to beggary, a damage of 1 million ruble, 60 dead, uh, 200 people uh, wounded. So basically, Kalarash looked very much like uh, Kathmandu looks uh, today. An entire community is absolutely devastated. Um, sure enough, soon after I see uh, on the list of Ellis Island, a group of immigrants coming from Kalarash. And if you look at the rightmost column, you can see Kalarash written on, under the last place of residence. Um, if I sum it all, uh, up all together over, the, uh, over time, this is how it looks. Okay, 1906 is the moment where um, people, uh, prospective migrants can react to the pogrom, and this is how the pogrom effects uh, looks in Kalarash. Now the question is whether Kalarash is um, is um, uh, is just an extreme case or whether it reflects uh, the general case. So at least in one case we have evidence that there is such a thing as a pogrom-driven migration. So let me show you some maps. Okay, so this is just to refresh your uh, memory. This is the distribution of the population across the Pale of Settlements. And here I marked the, the towns that founded associations prior to 1881. And what you see, and that's something that we didn't really know, and it's, com it's a complete surprise, that the early periods of the Jewish migration prior to 1881 was really coming from a very narrow strip of land adjacent to the German border. Now, where did the pogroms uh, take place? And that's something that we did know, completely disjoint. Okay, uh, the first wave of pogroms mainly occurred in the south. The question is what's gonna happen afterwards, after the pogroms. And so here are the associations that were founded in the next five years, uh, and are just in the same area where the previous migration took place, maybe a bit of an expansion. Um, maybe five years is not enough to start an association, so let's give these guys five more years. And really what you see is that the early strip of migration is kind of thickening, okay? And it takes very long time to the people who experience programs to actually get into the cycle of migration. If I show you a few, quickly a few more cycles, you're gonna see that there is a spreading out and that the regions that, that had experienced the program in the first wave are actually catching up, but later on, okay? Uh, now, evidence on the second wave of the programs. This one was much more widely spread, okay? Uh, I actually have data also on the severity of the program, so that's why we have different colors and different sizes. 
And um, this figure is really going to basically summarize uh, the whole story here. Uh, so I'm going to read it to you in uh, details. I'm not going to show you tables. Mo most of the papers really tables, statistical analysis, robustness checks. I'm going to spare from all of that. If you understand this graph, you're going to understand what I have to say about the Jewish migration. So um, if you look at the horizontal uh, axis, what you see is um, the average rate of migration. So each bullet is a district. I have about 200, more than 200 districts that I measured migration from. Now, on the horizontal axis, you see the rate of migration per capita prior to the second wave of programs. So this is a time where, as you saw on the maps, most of the regions are already exposed to migration, although for some regions, it's a new thing. Okay? So first, what you see is that there is a very large variation in the rates of migration from district. And this is something that we always see in the economics of, um, uh, of migration. Now, if you look at the vertical axis, what I have here is the change in the rate of migration from before the first wave, from before the second wave of programs until after. So this is change of migration from uh, 1900 to 1905 uh, relative to 1906-1914. And what you see here is that the main thing that's going on here is convergence. Districts that had lower rates of migration are actually increasing their rates of migration much faster. Okay, my interpretation here is that those regions actually had a very high potential for migration, but this potential was uh, inhibited simply because these people did not yet know someone who migrated before them, and it takes time for those um, networks to uh, filter. Now, what about the pogroms? Uh, what I'm going to do now is to separate the districts that experienced pogroms from those who did not. Oh, sorry. And this is what we see. Okay, the red districts are the ones that experienced pogroms. The blue ones are the ones that did not. And you see that all across this range, there is a consistent difference. Um, districts that did experience programs actually increased their migration by a lot more. And when I'm saying a lot more, I'm trying to give estimate to that. And uh, I'm not going to swear by any particular number, but I try all sorts of uh, statistical specification. And my conclusion is that uh, following a program, there, there is an increase in the rate of migration of about 10 to 20 percent relative to what, what would have otherwise uh, been. So uh, if I need to summarize the story here, then uh, the programs did not start the Jewish migration. But the myth of the Jewish, uh, of the programs driven migration is not dead. Uh, there actually was such a thing, and uh, it was uh, quite significant. Okay, so um, uh, if, if I would show this paper to economists, this is really where I would start. And from there on, we're going to discuss whether how robust is the evidence and so on. I'm going to spare you all that. I'm just going to tell you that, you know, don't take it as at face value. This is my best attempt. Um, and there are some statistical problems here, which I'm not going to discuss. Uh, but I think that the, the result is uh, fairly uh, robust. Okay, so uh, I'm a bit uh, late, so I'm going to move now to uh, the case of the Italian migration, okay? And here I'm kind of like somewhat switching uh, topics. Um, I think it's going to be useful if I just start with two quotes expressing two different uh, opinions. Okay, so this is a quote from the Commissioner General of Immigration, who is basically ranting about those new immigrants that are coming from the uh, European periphery. So uh, as, as I mentioned before, around the turn of the century, there was a switch in the geographic origins of migration. Instead of you know, the healthy Protestant uh, Western Europeans 
uh, we suddenly have Jews, Catholics, uh, Greek Orthodox coming in. And some people get worried about that. So here's one of them. The great bulk of the present immigration proceeds from Italy, Austria, and Russia. So basically, this, this, is, this means Italians, Poles, and Jews. Uh, and furthermore, from some of the most undesirable sources of population of those countries. No one would object to the better classes of Italians, Austrians, and Russians coming here in large numbers. But the point is that such better elements does not come. So basically, what this uh, view expresses is that uh, there is negative self-selection coming from uh, the European periphery. Uh, we're actually getting those who are less useful, less educated, less healthy, less productive uh, elements. Uh, but there was another view, and surprisingly, it actually comes from the Dillingham Commission that was generally uh, very opposed to uh, uh, the new immigration. Uh, although drawn from classes low in the economic scale, the new immigrants, as a rule, are the strongest, the most enterprising, and the best of their class. And what me and my co-author, Ariel Zimran, who is still a graduate student at Northwestern, uh, are doing uh, is basically to test uh, this question for the case of the Italian migration. And we're actually going to side with the second view. But there are, lots more, there are some details that it's, it's not as simple as it might seem. So how am I going to do that? Uh, well, this is a rather famous uh, picture. I didn't d dig it uh, in some dusty archive. Uh, but it's really fun. It tells the story, uh, a, a, very, a very important pattern that we're going to use. So these are uh, soldiers of uh, several countries uh, that are united in 1900 to suppress the Boxer Rebellion uh, in, in China. And um, you have Americans, British, Australian, French, uh, German, Italians, uh, and a Japanese guy. Now, you see that they're ordered in a very peculiar way. Okay? They're ordered by height. And I want to draw your attention particularly to the second guy from the right, right who's an Italian, and the second guy from the left, who's American, and compare their heights. OK, so um, it may come to some, some of you as a surprise or uh, as a very unpleasant fact, but your height actually tells a lot, not about you personally, but about the environment from uh, uh, which you come. And for reasons that I'm going to explain uh, soon, um, uh, these uh, heights, when, 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 um, when it's measured over a population. So most of the variation in heights between people, so between us, you shouldn't be fail if you're uh, feel bad if you're short. That's okay, that's uh, genetic variation. We are all well-fed um, um, uh, uh, Westerners. But 100 years ago, uh, Europeans were shorter, and Europeans who lived in poorer countries were much shorter. Um, the average Italian was one meter and 64 centimeters, I think. And the average European actually grew up by 11 centimeters in the uh, past century. And the fact is that the average height of the population is very closely correlated with uh, standards of living, with health, and with nutrition in childhood. So basically what I'm going to do, what Ariel and I are going to do in this paper, is to compare the Italian immigrants with the base uh, population of Italians in terms of their heights. And this is going to give us very good information that we cannot get otherwise about whether Italians were positively or negatively selected in terms of the standards of living from which uh, they came. So the leading question here is whether, whether the Italians were uh, positively select, uh, self-selected. Uh, the particular question is first whether there was overall 
uh, positive selection from Italy. And then also, we're looking at the local level and, and are asking conditional on, like, we, we can actually look at very small uh, regions and say whether from within those regions, rather than from Italy as a whole, was there a negative or positive selection. We're going to observe the patterns, the, the, the different uh, sorts of self-selection that we have across Italian provinces, and we're going to try to explain them. We have some very rudimentary findings. I'm not going to highlight them uh, so much, but this is also um, part of the purpose in this uh, paper. Now, the empirical strategy... Yes, I know that it's a very, uh, I, I was actually going to do it later on, but maybe it's that, that's the right time to do that, because sometimes it's very hard to, for, for people to, to, to accept that, you know, we're actually measuring, measuring sort of quality of people. Um, so first I want to make sure that, you know, we're not uh, speaking about anything normative. We're not sp saying that short people are bad people, okay? I'm not Randy, Randy Newman. Um, now, um, the question of self-selection is one of the fundamental questions of the economics of migration. It's really important for policy. It's important for uh, knowing the effect of migration on the sending country and on the receiving country. We want to know whether the guys who are moving in are the more educated, more literate, uh, more healthy, uh, the ones who are more who have better skills in the labor market, or or not. And this is really this is one of the really the key questions in economics of migration in the time of the migration of Italians and Jews 100 years ago, and still it still uh, is today. So this is really uh, so. Thank you, John. This is really the question that we are trying to uh, to, to uh, answer, but from um, a fresh uh, perspective. For example, positive self-selection would mean that those who had more skills were those who came. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so what I'm going to do, what we are going to do is, uh, well, it turned out that in 19, starting from 1907, uh, uh, the Bureau of Immigration actually required immig to, to, to immigrants, sorry, shipping companies, to also report the height of the immigrants. It turns out that almost nobody knew it. When I spoke to the historian of the Homeland, uh, Office of Homeland Security, which is the uh, kind of like the... The, the, the institution that inherited the Bureau of Immigration, she said, I'm the first one who asked this question about this data uh, since she started working on it in 1988. Uh, this was just sitting there, and this is kind of like a treasure of anthropometric uh, data that for the first time that, uh, we're going to use. Now, Italy is an excellent case to study this sort of selection simply because there is really, really good uh, data on heights distribution uh, at the origin. Uh, this data comes from uh, conscription data to the Italian army, which I'm going to um, uh, discuss uh, later on. And what we're going to do is basically to compare the heights of the immigrants with the distributions of height of people in Italy. Now, what both the Italian data and the Ellis Island data enable us to do is really to look at it at the local level. We can actually see, uh, identify where a person came from, from which uh, commune he came from, a township. And then we know exactly what is the distribution of his cohort of birth in its province of origin, uh, centimeter by centimeter. Okay, so this is very precise data, both on the side of the immigrants and on the side uh, of, um, of the population as a whole. And the exciting thing here is that we really can see the whole population. It's very rare in works that deal with uh, um, selection into immigration that you can actually compare the entire population of migrants to the entire population at home. So there is less risk of having some uh, uh, biases of selected samples uh, along the way. Now, our findings are the following. 
on average, the average Italian immigrant was actually shorter than the average uh, Italian subject. However, if you really look within the place from which you came, if you compare every person to his court of birth and his province of birth, you actually see that on average, there is positive selection. Uh, relative to their uh, places of origins, Italian immigrants were taller than the Italians, uh, than, than, their, uh, than their peers. And this is really driven by the peculiar geographic composition of the Italian uh, immigration to the United States. Um, Southerners turns out to be, to have been positively selected. Northerners turned out to be uh, negatively self-selected, but the immigration to the United States was really dominated by uh, Southern Italians. So overall, the average is that um, the sec basically conforms to the story of the second quote uh, that I showed you. Um, and currently, the most interesting speculation for understanding this pattern is that there was actually substitution across destinations. The south, the south of Italy was less exposed to other uh, destinations, such as Argentine or uh, Europe. And we find some evidence that the more you're exposed to other destinations, the shorter is, uh, are the, the relatively shorter uh, are the people. So basically, the story could be, I'm not going to argue for that, but it might be that United States really, um, if, for people who had other choices, United States were the place where the less skilled people went, and the southern Italians did not ha had, had less of these choices, and therefore those who migrated to the United States were on average uh, relatively taller. Um, okay, so here is some background. So I did, I did speak about quality. I don't want you to take it in any normative way. It's really in, any, in, in, in the sense that economists can measure, okay? Short people are not worse than others. Um, okay, it is a key question in economics of migration, as I explained before. And uh, there are two main theories that, that try to, uh, in economics that try to predict what's going to be the sort of selection of uh, immigrants. So the first is what we call the Roy model. I'll try to explain it very briefly on, on kind of one leg. Um, the story is that what really matters is the relative inequality in the two countries. For example, if southern Italy is a very unequal society, meaning that people with slightly lesser skills are doing much worse off, whereas in the United States it's more egalitarian, everybody can go work in the mines or in a, or, or in a workshop and make a decent living, and on, uh, the, the, the re so, so we're going to see more uh, negative uh, selected uh, migration. Basically, the, the people at the bottom, in terms of skills and education, have, more, have relatively more to gain by moving to a country that is more uh, egalitarian. Um, the other story would argue, would predict the, uh, the other pattern. And that is, this, this one highlights the importance of liquidity constraints. So migrating is an expensive enterprise, even if it's profitable on the long run. And uh, basically, uh, this theory argues that those who are, uh, have better resources in the country of origin are basically more likely to be able to finance this migration. Therefore, we're going to see more positively uh, selected uh, migration. Now, the evidence on that is very mixed. Different cases provide different answers. And it's very hard to find a clean uh, empirical setup to really test that. There is some work on that on Italy. The evidence is not only mixed, but it's very scanty. So there is very few in that, and it's not very convincing in the sense that we don't have good comparisons of the base population and the population of uh, immigrants. So this is really where the, uh, the contribution that we are making uh, is coming in. And uh, yeah, so uh, as I said, most of the variation in heights within a population is genetic. 
but a cross group it's correlated with all of those things that I would, as economists, would title other quality. Basically, we want immigrants who have better cognitive skills, better education, uh, can earn higher wages, have better skills at the labor market, uh, are wealthier and healthier. Okay, all these uh, measures are shown to be strongly correlated with height when compared across uh, population. Uh, it's frequently used in economic history to measure standards of living, particularly in, in cases in which uh, we can't have good measures of real wages and, uh, um, and GDP per capita. And sometimes it gives, very interestingly, it gives conflicting evidence on whether standards of living were rising or stagnating or even declining over uh, a given period. Uh, the advantage of this measure is that uh, it's very easily, easily and finely measured. Uh, it's pre predetermined. If you know that you're going to migrate, you can't really increase your height or jack up your height uh, preparing for migration. It's, it's what you got. Uh, and it's immutable. Um, so it's a very simple measure uh, to work with. Other alternatives are literacy, which is just binary, and it's not clear whether it's measured in the same way in the country of destination, in the country of origin, or occupation, that is very kind of like, people do that, but it's hard to deal with it. So um, I didn't collect the height data from Italy. Uh, that was done by a group of uh, historians, uh, Aherent from, came from Oxford, and a couple of uh, Italian historians. But they, they basically coded the entire distribution of uh, Italians who are reporting to, uh, for conscriptions. Even if they don't go to the army, they really had to report. So there are very few uh, non-show-ups for, for uh, uh, these tests. Now, from the Ellis Island arrival records, I have data on 4.8 million uh, Italian passengers. Some of them are actually passing multiple times. So the actual number of people entering is lower. The actual number of people staying is, is, is even lower than that. But I have 4.8 million uh, um, data records. The height was not uh, coded. We had to code a sample of heights that is available from 1907 uh, on. And the challenge was really to geolocate the last place of residence of those people, which we did using an algorithm that uh, uh, my colleague Ariel uh, uh, wrote. And by doing so, we basically mapped the last place of re residence of 3.2 Italian immigrants. So this is really by, a byproduct of this work is really to map the ent entire uh, Italian migration. And uh, about two thirds of them uh, came in the period in which height was registered. We take a sample of, the, of a few tens of thousands of these and decode their heights from uh, the manifests. This is more or less how the geocoding of the Italian migration looks like. It's not very informative. It's basically every place where there is an Italian uh, commune um, <laughs> someone came from. Um, this is how the data look. So I'm going to give you a, uh, an example. This is Pietro uh, Vanelli. And if you, you see his name written here on the left-hand side, he is uh, 23 years old, arriving in 1920. He's a laborer, uh, southern Italian, coming from the town of uh, Castel Boccaccio. Okay, so which is written, well, you probably can't see it, but it's written there uh, fairly clearly. Uh, now, Castel Bo uh, Botaccio, we, uh, our algorithm was actually uh, able to find it. It's a small town in uh, Campobasso. Now, this is the other side of the manifests, and uh, I don't know if you can see this one, but this is where his height is, uh, five feet and six inches. Okay, which, uh, and now we're gonna see how it compares to his peers in the same cohort in the same province. So this is where uh, uh, Castel Bottaccio is. And so people who were born in 1898 in, uh, in the province of Campobasso were on average 163 centimeters. 
the standard deviation is uh, six centimeters. Pietro Vanelli was about four and a half centimeters uh, taller than the average Italian from his court and the province. Therefore, sorry, uh, we give him a z-score, which is the difference from the mean divided by the standard deviation. He's uh, uh, three quarters of a standard deviation above the average height in his province. We do that for several tens of thousands of, um, uh, actually right now about 10,000 uh, Italians. And I'm going to give you a very brief uh, exposition of our main results uh, without getting into the uh, details. So this is kind of like uh, the bottom lines. So if you compare all of the Italian immigrants to the distribution of all Italians uh, in their cohorts, but not within their provinces, we find that on average, uh, the Italian immigrant was 0.1 standard deviation shorter than the average Italian. But as I said before, this is mainly due to the fact that southern Italians were shorter, about two centimeters shorter than the northern Italians. Um, and so if we give a fair chance to every immigrant to be compared to the environment from which he came, then we actually find that on average, there is an 0.03 standard deviation uh, advantage for those who are immigrating. It may sound like not much, it's, it's less than a centimeter, uh, um, but it's actually quite significant when we try to translate it into differences in standards of living. Uh, moreover, <coughs> immigrants com coming from the south were much more strongly positively self-selected, self-selected, 0.07 standard deviation above their average of their current in the province, whereas the northerners were much shorter. <clears throat> and this is one way to put a graphic representation, we collapsed the uh, observation coming from the same province. And on the horizontal axis, you can see the average height in the province. In the province. On the vertical axis, you can see the average height um, of immigrants coming from the province. And the important thing is that um, <clears throat> the dots are not aligned along the 45 degrees line, but are actually tilted, which means that people from shorter provinces are relatively taller. People from taller provinces are actually uh, shorter. So this is our main finding. We do a lot of work to try to show that it's really robust, that it's not living by all sorts of random things that happen in the data, or by the way you sample people, or by the way we, um, uh, we identify their locations. I'm not going to bother you with all that. Again, from here on, it's a business for applied economists. Don't take it at face value, but this is the best I can do, and I think that it's uh, pretty robust. Again, this is one particular angle to look at it, uh, but it's as good as evidence as that we've ever had uh, about the self-selection of the Italian migrants. And so uh, basically here I'm going to conclude. And uh, I want to point out that it's a very interesting question that comes out of this, is what is the relevant uh, point of reference? Uh, suppose you were at the Bureau of Immigration and you weren't there for humanitarian reasons. You just want to get the better guys in. Should you care for that? Should you, just, should you be worried that the immigrants are coming from poor, uh, are shorter because they're coming from poor province? Or maybe it's, it's actually good because as against their standards of living, they're actually be able, you're, you're getting those who, 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 are, who are able to relatively excel compared to their uh, starting points. And I think we wanted to point out, we, we don't know the answer to that. We do want to point out that it's very likely that it's actually is the case that the local self-selection is much more important than uh, the national self-selection. If I go back to, uh, uh, I borrow from my other population. Here is a nice proverb from Masechet uh, Avot, uh, from, from the Mishnah. Uh, Be a tail to lions rather than a head to foxes. Okay? Um, it looks like Italian immigrants are actually the head to the foxes rather than tail to the lions. Uh, but 
I think it's still an open question whether what does it mean um, and, and whether it's, it's, it's uh, th these guys were actually like the, the best of their, uh, uh, whether it's important for, for, for you know, policymakers 100 years ago that they actually got the best of the poorest. So um, that is about it. So there is, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> thank you.